Welcome to Unraveling the Words of Yahweh. My name is Kevin Eitner. I'm so glad to have you tuning in here this morning. Had a little bit of difficulty there with the music, but that's okay. Uh, we're here. We're ready to go. We're in this book of Revelation, and uh, we're going to be picking it up here in this chapter 6. Uh, opening of the seals. This, uh, uh, as I like to call it, the apocalypse. The apocalypse of Yeshua Messiah. And... Uh, just phenomenal. Truly, it's just phenomenal uh, what we what we got going on here. And uh, we just, I, I've been focusing on the last two lessons. That the apocalypse of Yeshua Messiah, this revelation, is not, let me repeat, not in chronological order. All right. You can go back and listen to the two previous. Uh, you can check it out on the podcast. You can go back and listen to the two previous podcasts um, of those programs where I show you that this book of Revelation is not in chronological order. We know that John was taken in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's now up in heaven. He, he just witnesses there in chapters four and five. And we read there in chapter five there about this scroll, this book. And it's saying, who's worthy? Who's worthy? Nobody in the heaven, nobody on the earth, or nobody under the earth is worthy to take this book. And then all of a sudden, worthy is the lamb there in verse 12. That was slain to receive power. Now don't overlook that. Slain to receive power. Riches and wisdom and strength and lay, uh, honor, glory and blessing. So now we're here in this chapter 6, verse 1. And I, John, saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. So John's physically standing there. I mean, this is, this is he's giving you a first-hand experience. Of what's taking place in the heaven. Now keep in mind. As this is taking place in the heaven. We see the events there in chapters 2 and 3. This is what's going on in the earth. Alright. This is going on the same time. As John is taken up into the heaven. And I heard as it were the noise of a thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. Hey, come over here, John. I want you to see this. Because you remember, you remember back in chapter one? Where he was told to record all these events. The revelation of Yeshua Messiah, which Yahweh gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and he signified by his angel unto his servant John. This is happening now. Now I want you to keep in mind that as I go through the seals... I'm giving you some thoughts on what is happening today and even yesterday. Don't lose the focus that these seals may have been open for some time now. But they're still doing their work. Keep in mind that they will continue to work until the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords comes back together to, to, to come back, <coughs> excuse me, to gather his redeem elect that continue to go about and reach out to the souls which lie in darkness and boldly proclaim the gospel of his kingdom, exposing this new world order. <coughs> Speaking of this new world order, Headlines. FBI raids multiple churches, including Texas Church, said to be recruiting Fort Hood soldiers reported. And in this article here, 
On Thursday, KWTX reported the FBI has raided three churches across the South, including a church in Keelan, Texas, said to be targeting service members from the nation's largest army base. I can confirm that the FBI was executing a court-authorized law enforcement activity day in the vicinity of the intersection of Massey Street and East Ranciera Avenue in Keelan, Texas. No additional information will be released at this time. FBI Special Agent Carmine Portolo said in an email statement that KWTX said to report, and it showed you the Assembly of Prayer of Christian Church. Now, I don't know nothing about these churches. But evidently, for, from what I'm gathering, that these churches were going out trying to preach the gospel to these servicemen, showing them, trying to wake them up what's going on. Also raided were the House of Prayer Church in Hinesville, Georgia, near Fort Stewart, and the Assembly of Prayer Church in Augusta, Georgia, near Fort Gordon. Both of these churches have also been accused of targeting service members, trying to reach out to this gospel. And the FBI is raiding this churches. Folks, this is a reality. This is what's happening in America today. Like I said, I, I know nothing about these churches, but evidently they, they're doing the Lord's will. They're, they're not some thumb-sucking churches like we have here in our local communities. They're trying to make a difference. Now, I want you, once again, let me express that the church slash the Excelsior is still on this earth. We are not raptured away, as many churches teach you. John is taken up to heaven and was in the spirit, giving details of what you and I can expect. So hold on now. We're getting ready to dig in. Verse 2. And I saw, and behold, it knew, calling attention to, something external to oneself. Now listen up now. Take particularly what John, take note particularly what John saw. Then remember that it is symbolic, and that instead of looking for the literal fulfillment, we are asking the meaning of the symbols. There are several features of the vision that, that fix our attention. Number one, the horse. Number two, his white co uh, color. Number three, the armed warrior. Number four, his crown. Number five, the bow. Number six, his mission. Take note, six. There's six different things. Six is man's number. It is certain that none of these features would have been named if they did not possess significance. What do each of these symbols mean? Well, we're going to find out here. So he says here, And behold, a white horse, the Antichrist, one of the many false messiahs, just as Yeshua Messiah stated there in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5. And Yeshua answered, he said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and shall deceive many. So this is what's happening here. And he that sat on him had a bow. We're going to come back here. This is a false, false rainbow. And a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Let's analyze this a little bit. Now, once again, this is a false rainbow. This is not Yeshua Messiah as some of the early Christian writers claim. Or even the Roman Catholic Church as those of the Reformation period. However, this is a fake religion just as we see today. We see many churches getting away from the truth of Yahweh's words. These, I believe, are the forerunners of the white horse. I just can't pinpoint one denomination 
once again, I, I believe I brought this up uh, uh, a couple weeks ago. Amos. Amos chapter uh, 8, verse 11. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh Adonai, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of Yahweh. And this is what we got today, folks. The churches are not teaching the words of Yahweh. This is the white horse. Remember I just made a comment, a statement, that John is taken up into the heavens in chapters 4 and 5. If you go back, if you go back to chapter 4, he goes, he just finishes up with chapter 3. Now keep in mind that in the original manuscripts, there are no chapters and there are no verses. So I want to go to chapter 3, verse 22. And he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now go to chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was it, was it, were a, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee great things which must be hereafter. So immediately, he's taken up. All this chaos is going on in, in, in within these seven churches. He's laying out the groundwork, folks. Now, let me ask you something. Could this be the religious beast of chapter 13? Well, that, really, that's a good question. When we read Revelation chapter 13, I want to just verse, uh, uh, verses 11 and 12. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. That's the political beast. And made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. So we see this, this religious beast system is promoting the political agenda, this new world order. The role of the second beast is to enforce the worship of Antichrist and to confront Christians with the choice of either proclaiming Anna, Antichrist as Lord or facing death. That's what this religious beast there in Revelation 13. It's a beast system. It's a system that that is 100% behind the new world order, the global elite, which is happening today. You see, folks, you sit there and you think you're going to be raptured out. In reality, you're already within these seals and you don't even realize it. The mild, lamb-like preacher who denies the deity of the Messiah speaks with the voice of hell. The meek, gentle preacher who denies the virgin birth is a wolf in sheep's clothing. The one who denies Yeshua Messiah is Yahweh in human flesh. The one who says that Yeshua Messiah is not 100% Yahweh. The one who denies the blood atonement and the sacrificial death of the Messiah on the cross. Or the one who denies the resurrection may look like a lamb. But he is speaking with the mouth of a dragon. If your church, now, now, let's, hold on, now, let's set this up here. If you are a Christian, and in your faith you accept the gospel of Yeshua Messiah, the kingdom, the death, burial, and resurrection, then why are you supporting the Zionist movement 
that has a desire to rebuild the third temple to bring in the Antichrist. You see, right now we got a bunch of little false messiahs. I don't care if it's the Catholic Church, because I find the same thing in the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, the Episcopalian Churches, the Pentecostal Churches that teach you to talk in tongues, the churches that teach the rapture doctrine, those lunatics out there that teach you, well, dear brother and sister, if you don't pay your tithes, you're going to hell. These are all groups of the white horse. As Satan lays his plans for a, a, a strategic final attack to dominate the earth, he attacks on three major fronts. Heck, we can say four. Listen very carefully. Political. Look around us. Look at our, pol our politicians. You know, we've got a bunch of lunatics, especially the liberal politicians. How can the liberal politicians have views of socialism, communism, and such when they claim to be Christians? How can these liberal Democrats be pro-abortion if they all claim to go to church? Why isn't the minister standing up? And I, I don't give a who what church denomination you are. We got bumbling idiots right here in Dover, Delaware, that are so liberal and they claim to be Christians. Somebody's not doing their homework. There's no way that a man of Yahweh would preach a liberal view which goes against the words of Yahweh. They're satanic. They're Luciferian. Why would you want to keep an, a, a, a praising individual that promotes Zionism like the, the John Hagees and the Robinsons of the world? The rebuilding of the third temple, ushering in the Antichrist. You see, folks, this is a reality. We're already living into it. I feel sorry for those that think they're going to be raptured out prior to the tribulation period. We are already in the seals. White. What about this white horse? Well, white is symbolic of purity. Now, keep in mind, you know what? I I'm going to turn there. Keep in mind that Satan can turn himself into a light. I want to go to uh, 2 Corinthians. Chapter 11. We're going to pick it up here at verse 14. Well, you know what? I'm going to pick it up here in verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12. But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion that wherein they may glory, they may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of the Messiah. That's disguising. They're disguising themselves. And no marvel, don't marvel this, for Satan himself is transformed, in other words, disguised, into an angel of light. Into an angel of light. Let me go into, uh, uh, since I'm in 2 Corinthians, how about if we flip back to chapter 2? And let's, let's pick it up here. It's see, verse 11. Uh, pick it up verse 10. We're going to focus on verse 11. But let's go to verse 10. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of the Messiah. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. In other words, 
his method of operation. You understand what Paul is saying? For we are not ignorant. Here's where the problem lies within the churches. The churches are ignorant of the devices, the method of operation of Satan. Satan has infiltrated the churches today across this, um, this nation, across this world. Or we would not be, I don't care what, what part of the world you live into. If those politicians are, are taught the gospel of Yeshua Messiah, we wouldn't be in this predicament. But we got these liberal, socialist, communist politicians that rather work for Satan, Lucifer. They follow the Kabbalist ways. They're transforming themselves. We got these lunatic ministers standing in the pulpits telling the brothers and the sisters that it's okay to be a Freemason. It's okay to be an Eastern star. They're working for Lucifer. Albert Pike states very clearly in Morals and Dogma. We worship Lucifer. Now, here's a, remember I told you there's six key elements in here? I want you to listen to this now. He says here, a white horse. Oh, hold on a second here. The horse was never used by the Jews or the Orientals as a beast of burden. The ox and the ass were devoted to that office. The horse was reserved for war. Whenever the horse is mentioned by the prophets, it will be found in connection with war-like employments. That the horse is always associated with war can be seen by consulting Job, Job, Job chapter 29, verse 25, Psalms chapter 76, verse 6, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 31. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 6. Ezekiel chapter 26, verse 10. Therefore, this symbol points to a period of war, though it alone does not declare whether the conflict is carnal or spiritual, it's triumph or disastrous. Satan is after your souls, folks. He that sat, not to be identified with the white horse and the rider uh, of chapter 19, verse 11. See, that's to say Yeshua Messiah. If you go back to, uh, let me turn there, Revelation chapter 19. I go to verse 11. And I saw heaven open up and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. In righteousness, he does judge and make war. See, in chapter 19, we got the positive white horse. This is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Whereas in chapter 6, this is the antichrist. These false denominational churches that are leading good, good people. Don't get me wrong now. Good people. The only problem I got is these thumb-sucking milk-bottle Christians that go to church claim they're filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, if you're filled with the Holy Ghost, how come you're so illiterate when it comes in the, in the Scriptures? How come you're not studying? Because see, my Bible tells me that when the Holy Spirit grasps under your spirit, you're a living, you're a new living creature, and you have a desire to study the word. But we got these bumbling idiots going to church. They don't even carry Bibles anymore. It's sad, folks. It's sad, but take take notice here. And he had a bow. No arrows. This is a rainbow, the false one. As we read there. In chapter 3 there, and it says there, and he, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, and he that sat was to look upon a jasper, or sardis there, and there was a rainbow around the throne. The bow serves to identify the imagery here with that in Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 9. 
Habakkuk there. The bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes. Even thy word, Zila. Zila means it's connecting. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. Where Eliahim goes forth for the salvation of his people. Also in Isaiah chapter 41 verse 2. Who raised up the righteous man from the east? Called him to his foot. Gave the nations before him. Made him rule over kings. He gave them as the dust to his sword. And as driven stubble to his bow. I can think of Zechariah chapter 9 verse 13. Even more strikingly with that in Psalms chapter 45 verses 4 and 5. In thy majesty ride prosperity because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. The hours are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies whereby the people fall under thee. It's hardly possible that one whose mind was full of such imagery should have any other meaning and then his thoughts, then that to which these prophecies point. But take notice of his crown. Don't overlook this crown. Stephanos. Stephanos in the Greek. In other words, this Stephanos, this crown, is a garland or a wreath of a conqueror, which is also implied by his white horse, white being the emblem of victory. It means rulership. Now, Here's another interesting thought on the bow and the crown. The first writer of Revelation chapter 6 carries a bow. In Greek, it's toxon, which is the root of our English word toxic. The toxon is not the weapon Yeshua Messiah welds in Revelation 19. He In Revelation 19, it reads, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which it strikes down the nations, the word. Talk about the word, I am the word. The second clue is the crown. This writer's uh, crown is once again is Stephanos, a crown of victory, given to the winners in public games in the Greek world. It could also signify political power, which certainly fits this writer and his mission to conquer. Now, Stephanos, difference from the diadem, the source of our English word diadem. You see, Yeshua Messiah, the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19, wears many diadems, distinguishing him from the rider called forth at the opening of the first seal. Now, this leads us to a major question. If we believe the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6, verse 1 and 2, is literally an entity and not just a symbol. Well, then, who is he? Now, I want you to stay with me. As I go into some historical facts that could lead us to our answer, we're going to get deep here now. This is why we call this unraveling the words of Yahweh. Now, keep in mind, John, John's taken up into the heavens. He's given a vision. He's shown. But he writes down the things that he is familiar with. So we, we, we can look at so much modern, but we got to go back to, to what John may have been, been thinking about. Now, text found at Tel Mardiki in, in northern Syria, the ancient city of Ebla, tells us of a god called Rishaf, a plague god, god, a gatekeeper of the neither world. Rishaf was equated to the underworld god of Akkad and Babylon. They're in Nergal. I think that this entity is a good fit for the first writer. You remember now, keep in mind now, as we get further into Revelation, they actually call the city of Jerusalem Babylon. All right? 
Rishif makes a number of appearances in the Bible. The Hebrew prophets knew this character very well. Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk means embrace. Habakkuk's prayer in chapter 3 summarizes Yahweh's battles on behalf of Israel. And the prophet refers to a pair of rebellious sons of Elihim. Now, I want you to check this out. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3. Verse 3 reads, Eloha came from Timon, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Zila. In other words, it's connecting, is coming forth with the glorious effects of it. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Verse 4. His brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Verse 5. Sharpen up now. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. Now, pestilence in the Hebrew is deeper. Burning coals in the Hebrew is reshif. These were pagan deities in the days of the prophets. In the passage above, verses 3, 4, and 5, Abaca chapter 3, Abaca describes Deber and Reshif as submissive to Yahweh. Now, what we have to understand here in this book of Revelation is Yeshua Messiah is opening up. He is in control. Alright? He is in control. These seals are being sent forth. Not only to harm the enemies of the great I Am, but to also to waken us up from the deep sleep of not understanding his words. Before him went pestilence, Debar. These are pagan deities. Before him went the pestilence, Debar, and the burning coals, Reshif, went forth at his feet. This Reshif was one of the most popular gods in ancient New East for about 3,000 years. He was a warrior, a divine archer, who spread plague with his arrows. This is a description that fits well with the first writer of Revelation chapter 6, whose bow is Taxon, a bow with poison arrows. The root behind Reshift's name appears to mean flaming, burning, or even lightning. Possibly a metaphorical reference to the fever that accomplished the plague. An intriguing reference to Reshift comes from the Psalms where Yahweh's punishment of the Egyptians for their treatment of Israel is described. In Psalms chapter 78, we're going to pick it up verse 48. He gave up their cattle also to the hail. Now I want you to listen to this because exactly what happened in Egypt will transpire in the future. He gave up their cattle also to the hail and their flocks to the hot thunderbolts. In my notes... I got thunderbolts and bold. We're going to come back to that. Verse 49. He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, trouble by sending 
evil angels among them. Verse 50. He made, he made a way to his anger. He spared not their soul from death. But they but gave their life over to pestilence. Now, <coughs> pestilence in this verse 50 is actually the pestilence god Deber. He gave them up, but gave their life over to Debor, this anti-God, this Satan. But, now, this pestilence is Debar here in verse 50, is that, is, but it's not Reshiv. However, the thunderbolts in verse 48 are connected to Reshiv rather than to the storm god Baal. Even more interesting, the verse literally reads, He gave over their cattle to the hail and the flocks to the reshiphium. That is, to the reshift, to these false gods. And this is exactly what's happening behind this. What's happening right now. Listen up. There's nothing new under the sun. This is what John, John knew all this. Just as Yahweh's enemies were given over to Satan, to these, these storm gods, this Debar, and, and this Rishim, we're having this today. If you don't accept Yeshua Messiah as your personal Savior, and you continually to do evil over and over, and your burning desire is to take down Yahweh's elect, that's the key. If your burning desire is to take down Yahweh's elect, whether spiritually or physically, he is coming against you. Now, here's where the problem lies with the Christians. Christians get caught up in these worldly things. They fail to remember that you and I, we are sealed. Especially if you got your gospel armor on. Let me ask you something. Do you have your gospel armor on? I'm turning to John chapter 3. The gospel of John chapter 3. Let's see here. And, and he states here. About. Uh, that's, where am I here? The fact that you are sealed. In, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 33. He that has received his testimony has set to seal that Yahweh is true. You are sealed. Matter of fact, in this book of Revelation, chapter 14. We can, go to the, we can go to the same thing here. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads, you are sealed. Oh yeah, it's going to get rough, there's no doubt about it. But as being part of Yahweh's elect, you are sealed, you are protected. He's coming to put a hinder to the enemies, his enemies, of the gospel of Yeshua Messiah. Now I want you to consider this. Since the root word behind the type of the angelic beings are called seraphim, because Sarah, seraphim also means burning, thus making the seraphim burning ones. Is it possible that the reshiphim are another class of angels? It's speculative, but not impossible. An inscription from the Phoenician city of Zidon in the 5th century B.C. names one of the city's quarters the land of the Reshephims. This takeaway from Psalm 78 is that the judgment against Egypt 
were carried out by a company of destroying angels, which included Deber, Bara, which is hail, and reshift, or the reshifts. It would seem then that those destroying angels were associated with Yahweh when he led Moses and Israel to Canaan. And in our views, these entities have been allowed to roam the earth in the years since. Here's why I've taken this detour into the history of Reshef. Not only was this God equated with Nergal of the Babylon Pathion, he was also known as the divine archer and the plague god of the Greeks and Romans, Apollo. You ever hear of the Apollo space program? Do you ever do a little research on that and where it really stands for? While you may not be familiar with the Reshef or and the Nergal, you've certainly heard of Apollo. He was the Greek god par excellence, the god of music, the oracles of poetry, the ideal, ideal athlete, the bearless youth, the god who hitched the team of heavenly horses to the solar chariot that carried the sun god Helios across the sky each day. In ancient Greece and Rome, where he was one of the only a few deities called by the Hellenic names, Apollo was a, was a god to be feared. Now, Apollo's role as a god of oracles sets him apart from his older incarnations, Reshef and Nergal. As the center of the world's political power shifted westward from Mesopotamia towards Greece and Rome, Apollo became the primary source of divine revelation. It's interesting. Apollo's oracles fell silent when the worship of Yeshua Messiah spreads across the Mediterranean world. The Pytha at Delphi went quiet after the 2nd century A.D., and in the 3rd century, the other major oracles at, at Dinama and Claris in Western uh, Asia Minor ceased to prophesy well. Now, one of the last known messages from Apollo came through an oracle at Claris in the late 2nd or early 3rd century. This is preserved on the wall at Eonada, an ancient Greek city in what is now called southwestern Turkey. If this writing is genuine, it's truly remarkable, considering that what the God seems to omit about the one true Yahweh. This is what it reads. Self-produced, untaught, without a mother, unshaken, a name not even to be comprised in word, dwelling in fire, this is God, and we, his messengers, are angels, or a slight portion of God. That's what's wrote. Now, Lactantius noted that this could not refer to the king of the Roman Pantheon, Jupiter, who had both a mother and a name. Only Yahweh, the God of the Bible, could make such a claim. The oracle speaking for Apollo had been compelled to admit it. Not long after this, Apollo fell silent. Now, one other point that exists between Apollo and the rider on the white horse. The Greeks and the Romans credited the god with the interventing the Stephanos, the crown of victory, giving to the rider on the white horse here in this verse 2 of Revelation chapter 6. Now, according to the Greek myth, Apollo, the divine archer had mocked the god Eros, better known as Cupid, for taking up the bow. In revenge, Cupid let fly a couple of arrows, one of gold for Apollo and one of lead for the river nymph Daphne. The golden arrow ignited the god's passion for the nymphs. Eros is the origin of the modern world erotic. So love is probably not the correct word 
to describe Apollo's feelings. The lead arrow had the opposite effect on Daphne. She fled from Apollo's armorous advances, finally crying out to her father, the river god Ladon, for rescue. He responded by transforming her into a laurel tree. Seeing that the object of his desire had turned into a tree, a still smitten Apollo declared that Daphne's leaves would always adorn his hair. Furthermore, he would use his skill as a healer to keep her forever young. This is why the story goes, the laurel is evergreen. Her leaves crown the heads of winners at the Pythion Games. This link between the, the Stephanos and Apollo would have been common knowledge among the Mediterranean people of the first century AD. A laurel reef was the crown given to victorious military commanders at their triumphs. The most important question concerning the entity and whether he fits the description of the rider on the white horse is this. How was Apollo viewed in the Roman world of the first century AD? As it happens, Apollo's status as a second-tier god in Roman changed just before the birth of Yeshua Messiah when Octavian, the nephew of Julius Caesar, rose to power after the great man's death. Octavian credited Apollo with his decisive victory over Mark Anthony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium on September the 2nd, 31 BC, which was fought under the shrine to Apollo. The wind cemented Octavian's control over Rome and its territories, making him the master of the world from Britain to the Holy Land. Octavian soon became became a proclaimed Caesar Augustus, the Reverend Caesar by the Roman Senate. He built a temple to honor Apollo, connected to his own home on the Palatine Hill, centermost of the seven hills of Rome. Some 40 years after the death of Augustus, Nero became emperor upon the death of Emperor Claudius, who was probably poisoned by Nero's mother, Agrippina. It seems Nero believed he was the equal Apollo, has performed on uh, uh, the, uh, the Siddhara, which was a type of a liar. About 500 year, uh, five years into his reign, the poet Lucan declared that the emperor, the new Apollo, during a performance of the Neronian Games in AD 60. So we see here, folks, it's fair bet that when John's reader in the early 2nd century noted the description of the beast in Revelation 13.3, many saw Nero as one of the seven heads, the one that seemed to have the mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. The takeaway for us is not whether Nero was the Antichrist, although he definitely wasn't. What's relevant is the emperor was closely identified with Apollo. And that Apollo was the symbol of Rome's might through the ease of the laurel leaf Stephanos to reward victorious military commanders. However, we do not connect Apollo to the rider of the white horse. To be clear, the first rider of Revelation is not the Antichrist. That's the beast who emerges from the sea in Revelation chapter 13. The creature with the seven heads, ten horns, and the ten diadems the crowns of royalty. The white horse rider in Revelation 6 only has one crown. It's a Stephanos. You see, faith in Yeshua Messiah gradually replaced the cults of the pagan gods in the Mediterranean world. Meanwhile, the culture of the Greece and the Rome became the basis of Western civilization. This is how the first rider earned the crown of victory. When he went forth conquering and to conquer. Apollo's victory was not military. It was in the corruption of the nations who traced their culture, philosophical, and political heritage to Rome and Greece. Unaware that the epitome of unblemished youth in those cultures, the Patreon god of music and prophecy was also a terrifying plague god 
with strong connection to the underworld. If we interpretate these seals by the words of Yeshua Messiah, there in Matthew chapter 24, where he is describing the very time and answer to the disciples' questions. There can be no doubt as to their meaning and the reality. His very first words relate to the false messiahs who shall appear as a sign when these things should be. That's to say when the temple should be destroyed. And so it was. But these were only the prelude to what should mark the beginning of sorrows. These should begin not by many false messiahs, but by one who should give out and say, I am the Messiah, and he shall deceive many. This first seal, therefore, must mark the first rising of the false messiah. This is the silent, secret, preliminary imitation of his going forth. Further details of this are given in Revelation chapter 13 where it is expressly said that it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and there was given him authority over every tribe and people, tongue and nation, and who dwell on the earth shall do homage to him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain. From the foundation of the world, there in Revelation chapter 13, verses 7 and 8. It seems impossible to separate this from the rider on the white horse, there in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. For we read of him, in like manner, he was given to him to wear a crown and go forth and overcome. You see, folks, this is a reality. We are living in that first seal. The descriptions of the Antichrist's career and other scriptures coincide entirely with this. He rises unrecognized by dwellers on the earth. He begins his peace but his aim is the universal dominion, which he finally, by the way, acquires. When his downfall comes, the reflection of the holders will be, is this the man that made the earth to tremble? That did shake kingdoms? That made the world a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof? As we read there in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. In Daniel, it is said, that his power shall be might, that he shall destroy wonderfully. Dan chapter 8, verse 24, and that in Dan chapter 11, it reads, that he shall stretch forth his hand upon the countries. As to the command, the obedience to do it, he went forth, shows that the verb, ek omaya, to come or go, must be taken in the latter sense, go. Or in the se else, the second occurrence of the verb should be, he came forth. The commission given to him concerning war, as the second seal goes on to explain. Once again, horses are specifically associated with war. As I stated in Job chapter 39, Proverbs chapter 21. The horse is prepared against the day of the battle. We, we, we checked out Psalm 76, Zechariah 9, 10, Jeremiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 43. But because the rider on the white horse of Revelation 19 is Yeshua Messiah, that's no reason why the on the white should be the Messiah also, especially the very same. There is a significant difference, folks. Another one, folks. This is sad. This is sad. As we continue here, you know, there's so much goes on here. So much. I could go on and on just about this. Another interesting thought on this, on this white horse. Paul Blanchard, in his very interesting political science book, Communism, Democracy, Catholic Powers, contends that almost every conflict between nations in modern history has been produced by the conflicts generated among three forces. Communism, capitalism, Catholicism. Capitalism is an economic system in which private individuals or groups eventually own, uh, owns land. 
and factories, other means of production. You know, uh, let me pull this article up. I'm going to pull this article up here. Uh, who owns Big Pharma? Th this is a very, very, very interesting. I I'm not going to read the whole thing. Who owns Big Pharma plus Big Media? You'll never guess. Big Pharma and the mainstream media are largely owned by two asset management firms, BlackRock and Vanguard. Drug companies are driving COVID-19 responses, all which so far have endangered rather than optimized public health. Vanguard and BlackRock are the top two owners of Time Warner, Comcast, Disney, News Corp. Four of the six media companies that control more than 90% of the U.S. media landscape. Do you understand that? Two companies, two asset management groups, Vanguard, BlackRock. BlackRock and Vanguard form a secret monopoly that owns just about everything else you can think of, too. In all, they have ownership of over 1,600 American firms which in 2015 had a combined revenue of $9.1 trillion. You understand that? $9.1 trillion. When you add in the third largest global owner, State Street, their combined ownership is nearly 90% of all the S&P 500 firms. Vanguard is the largest shareholder of BlackRock, Vanguard itself, on the other hand, has a unique structure that it makes its ownership more difficult to discern, but many of the oldest, richest families in the world can be linked to Vanguard funds. What does the New York Times and the majority of other legacy media have in common with Big Farmer? They're owned by BlackRock Vanguard. The stock of the world's largest corporations are owned by the same institutional investors. They all own each other. That means like competing brands like Coke and Pepsi aren't really competitors at all since their stock is owned by exactly the same investment companies, investment funds, insurance companies, banks, and in some cases, governments. And I can go on and on, but I think you're starting to get the picture. I hope you're waking up. Big Pharma and mainstream media are largely owned by the two largest assets firms, BlackRock and Vanguard. When you throw in State Street, they nearly own 90% of all the S&P firms. That's a reality, folks. This is what we're doing. Now, even though the Catholic Church may not be 100% Guilty of this white horse. It perfectly fits the description of the white horse rider of this first seal. Now, what's interesting is that the Roman Catholic policy that the Pope dresses in white, his helicopter, his Pope mobile, his jet airplane are all white. If he had a horse, what color do you suppose it would be? White. Also, I want you to take note of something else. In the, the uh, uh, St. Peter's uh, uh, Square, that fallacy, the monument, that's an Egyptian. It's a pagan, uh, pagan deity. Same thing as we see in, in front of the uh, White House, the Washington Monument. All the same. They worship Lucifer. Keep in mind that the white seal is a symbol of peace. The predominant message of the Roman Catholicism is a message of peace. The Vatican has become a diplomatic peace center for the world. When peace is being negotiated between rulers of our world, the Pope and other high officials of the Roman Catholic Church many times are consulted. Newspapers, magazines, books, television, radio applaud his efforts towards peace. Pope Paul VI was the world's first religious leader to speak before the United Nations General Assembly. His message was, lay down your arms, war no more, never again. 
In this verse, too, it states that the rider of the white horse went forth conquering and to conquer. Although Catholicism as president has no standing army, it is certainly a conquering power. When the majority of the people of a nation becomes Catholic, that nation is referred to as a Catholic nation. For this reason, the Catholic Church has made a serious and a concert, uh, concerted effort to bring American Catholic Church under its absolute control and to eliminate totally American dissidents. One of the Vatican's major goals is to conquer America. This is the spirit of the White Horse. Conquering and conquer is the spirit of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I want to share with you some headlines. January 1st, 2004, Pope calls for a new world order. June 14th, 2022, the Vatican and the post-pandemic world order. September 2nd, 2022, a, poop, a Pope's new world order. Pope Benedict XVI proposes a stunningly radical approach to global economy. I just read to you. Vanguard Black Rock. I could go on and on, but I believe that you're starting to get the picture. Now, keep in mind that this white horse is just part of the plan set forth by Satan slash Lucifer to destroy the elect saints of the Messiah. Once again, this prophecy, which John was given, is also the same one there in Zechariah chapter 6. Verses 1 through 8. As I close out this morning, it goes, He went forth conquering and to conquer. Once again, I state that the white horse is a symbol of purity and peace. Here we see a rider who appears to come in the, in the name of and bearing a message of peace. But he's a conqueror, one who imposes his version of peace to the world. Possibly this rider will even bring about a, a pseudo-peace a condition described by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction come upon them, and they shall not escape. We read in Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. The history of the great flood in Genesis is a striking illustration that Yahweh is a Yahweh of promises. The cause for the flood was exceeding sinful as a man. Then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There in Genesis 6.5. Yahweh set forth his plan to deal with this problem by a promise of judgment. So Yahweh said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the, from the face of the earth. In Genesis 6-7. Thus, through promise, judgment by floodwaters became a certainty. Although with a promise of judgment, Yahweh made a promise of deliverance, a promise of grace. But Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh there in Genesis 6-8. The grace was available through the promised ark of protection. But I will establish, he says, my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark there in Genesis 6-18. Noah trusted in the Lord's plan and provision and was thereby preserved from judgment. Thus Noah did according to all that Yahweh commanded him. So he did. There in Genesis 6.22. Then the Lord promised Noah and all humanity that a judgment of floodwaters would never again destroy mankind. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Additionally, Yahweh established by promise a sign for the covenant. I set my rainbow in the cloud. It shall be for the sign of a covenant between me and the earth. Genesis 9, verses 12 and 13. These promises concerning the flood and Yahweh's Ark of Salvation are a picture of Yeshua Messiah being our Ark of Eternal Salvation. Peter wrote of the flood and the Ark, 
the long-suffering of Yahweh, wait in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. 1 Peter 3.20 Then he likened Noah's rescue through the ark and the floodwaters to our rescue through Yeshua Messiah and the waters of baptism. There is also a, a, an antitype, a prefiguring, which now saves us, namely baptism, not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of good conscience towards Yahweh through the resurrection of Yeshua Messiah. There are 1 Peter 3.21. When we identify by faith with the death and the resurrection of Yeshua Messiah, which is as significant of water baptism, Yeshua Messiah became our ark of salvation, whereby we are brought to Yahweh, rescued from the judgment due to our sins. Now every rainbow can remind us of Yahweh's faithfulness to keep his promises of salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Yeshua Messiah, we rejoice in you as you are our ark of safety from judgment and for my sins. Please remind us at the sight of every rainbow that you keep all of your promises of salvation. Father, as, as we come into these times, these judgment times, we see this white horse of the first seal spreading a false gospel, a false message. As I just shared with the listeners this morning about you being that ark of salvation, that rainbow, we should be remembered to focus on you only. We know that the scriptures tells us to study and approve ourselves worthy, to research the scriptures, scriptures that we can discern the false from the true and the true from the false. Father, I thank you so much for the listeners out there this morning that have a burning desire to understand wholly your words. I thank you so much that the Holy Spirit this morning is revealing to us, is opening our eyes up to your words and to the meaning of them, Father. Father, we give you all the credit. You see, Lord, our burning desire is to save souls, to reach out to those in the darkness, to bring those into the light. And with your help, Father, we can accomplish that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all things. But thank you for the greatest gift, the King of King and the Lord of Lords, Yeshua Messiah. Amen. Amen.